All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Welcome to this episode of Making the Argument. This is Hamilton here with Nick down in Richmond, Lydia up on, on the Upper East Coast, Christian and Tina here in the studio. We appreciate you joining us for this episode. We want to make sure that you all have the opportunity to be a part of our show and you can do that by joining the community chat in the description of this podcast. We've got an exciting topic for you and some folks like Thomas Massey doing some interesting things uh, that I think do a good job of making a point. So at this point, I am going to hand it over to Lydia to start us off. Thank you so much, Hamilton. So today's topic is a little more complex, so I'm really going to be leaning on Christian and Nick to give us some of their, their own personal experience and background with this one. We're going to be talking about the debt ceiling, and it's kind of off-putting. It's a little black-pilling if you're not careful, so we're going to try to look at it in the most reasonable and responsible and uplifting way possible. So I am actually excited to get into that. I do have a bunch of questions for everybody, so let's go ahead and get rolling. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was Joe Manchin kind of discussing what he saw as possible potential moving forward with this. He was really hoping that Democrats would negotiate with the GOP on the debt ceiling and use the opportunity to fix the budget process. So I have a, here an article from the Daily Wire. I don't know if you want to pull that up, Hamilton. Um, but I think we're all familiar with Joe Manchin at this point. He's one of the more moderate, saner voices of the Democrat Party, even though he just was over in Davos for reasons fully unknown to me personally. But here he is talking about how he wanted to call his fellow Democrats to negotiate with a Republican House majority on the debt ceiling. So he went on a bunch of different TV shows and he was calling out members of his own party who are not willing to negotiate with the GOP. He was saying that the debt ceiling fight presents an opportunity to address the dysfunction around the federal budget process and make changes. So Nick, you kind of work in this field and you have kind of experience in this background, although not at the federal level. What do you think of this fight and what possible good can come of it in the end? Well, theoretically, if uh, so, let, let's say Joe Manchin's serious, that's what he wants, and he has enough people that can go about it. They could come up with a, a much more transparent process for doing it. They could come up with budget tri uh, prioritization. They could come up with things like, oh, I don't know, a constitutional amendment that requires a balanced budget like we have in Virginia. I mean, there's all sort of things that they could do that, that would theoretically be productive and that neither side should have any huge heartburn with, except for the fact that the federal government has a special little power that all the state governments don't have, and they can print their own money. And so whenever we talk about the debt ceiling, all, all that is, for those that don't know, is that there is a legal limit to which the Congress can um, essentially assume more debt 
um, before they have to vote to increase it. And as everyone knows, the, the government can't pay all of its bills. So it takes out additional debt and it generally does so in the way of, of releasing things like treasury bonds that people buy, um, that the government then uses that money. Um, <clears throat> sometimes they print the money. That's what they were doing. That's what we call inflationary monetary policy or monetizing the debt. Uh, but that, that's what's going on right now. And it's been going on for forever at this point. And so um, ra- raising the debt ceiling just means that once again, the federal government can't meet its obligations with the current money that it has, both that it's taken in through taxes, fees, fines, things of that nature, as well as the money that it's borrowed. Like everything that it's done up to this point, the money it's borrowed, has not been enough to pay all the bills. So it's going to allow itself to take on even more debt. And whenever they talk about the, the crisis of not raising the debt ceiling, what they mean is, is that they're, they're reaching a point where the government could potentially default on its debts. And the reason why they say it's so catastrophic is because if the United States government doesn't you know, pay off its debts, which it's legally obligated to do, or pay the interest on its debts, then you know, the, the credit of U.S. bonds and all that stuff goes down, and people don't want to buy treasury bonds if you're not going to get paid back when you, when you buy the bonds. So that's why they make such a big deal out of it. The interesting part is that the Democrats' solution to this is, well, we just need to raise taxes on people. You know, the real problem here is not all this massive government spending. The real problem is, is we haven't taken enough from taxpayers. And then on, on the Republican side, um, and, and I'm not, I'm, believe me, Republicans have a lot to be ashamed of with respect to how they've done a lot of things with the budget process. Their whole thing is, well, no, we have to actually rein in government spending. Um, especially, you know, this, the, the debt spending. And the only way that you're ever going to get to that um, is if you actually come up with kind of a fair, open, transparent process. Um, and if you actually put requirements, constitutional requirements that force the federal government to balance their budget um, every year. And, and honestly, not just balance their budget, but have to balance their budget within what the revenues that they take in. Um, if you wanted to compromise, you could come up with some sort of thing saying that, you know, you, you can't, you know, your, your debt can't go above a certain level, but you can still have some debt. If they did all that, that would all be positive benefits. The problem is, is that I don't think the Democrats have any incentive to do any of it at this point, because they believe politically they will benefit because they think they can just blame the Republican House where all of your budget bills originate from. They can blame the the Republican House and kick this down and benefit politically. So I don't I don't think they believe they benefit politically from making the sort of changes that I think a lot of people want. Most people want. Um, that, so that's kind of a once over the world. Like I said, in Virginia, I, I know a lot more about our budget process. You know, um, and and it's a lot more. I, I'm not saying it's it's you know, there's a lot of improvements that can be made on our process as well. But it's it's nowhere near as ridiculous and absurd as as the federal government's process. Because most people will tell you, like, we, we haven't been operating off of, like, normal budgets at the federal level. They just have these continuing resolutions where essentially everyone agrees to keep funding certain things w- without having a, a proper budget process. That's a once over the world. Now, Nick, we spoke spoken at length about monetary policy on this podcast over the last couple of months. And it seems like to me that we as conservatives and those on the left or even some Republicans have an entirely different philosophy when it comes to government spending, where that money comes from. And to a conservative, we look at this and we say, OK, how in the world could they continue increasing the debt limit? And it seemed, what, talk to us about what those who are in favor of raising the debt limit or continually printing money, what are, what kind of philosophy do they have? What is it called and why do they think it's sufficient? And why don't they just come out and say, hey, we can print our way to prosperity? So 
so okay if i'm if i'm being as let me put their position in the fairest possible thing i i can do and that would be to say that okay they're not you know okay they don't want inflation let's talk about people that are you know reasonable and not like mmt theorists or something like that so you're you're, you're i'll say a, you know kind of an old school democrat might say that of course the government's going to have some debt that's fine it's not a big deal but let's assume they say the debt's gotten out of hand the way they would want to pay for that is they would want to cut Typically, they would want to cut funding from things like the military. They would want to cut things maybe from federal law enforcement. Um, they would want to raise taxes, right? And, and particularly, they would want more progressive income taxes. They would want to raise the wealth tax. You see some of the Democrats talking about raising what they call um, uh, an unrealized gains tax, which is essentially another tax on investment, right? So these are all the things they would raise in order to pay for the things that they think are essential government services. So Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, plus there's a whole bunch of pork spending, right? There's a whole bunch of things that the federal government spends money on that would just blow your mind. And if you ever want a list of the most absurd, just go to Rand Paul. Uh, Rand Paul does a, a list of this every year, actually, usually around yeah. Christmas, where he talks about some of the most absurd expenditures that the federal government spends money on. But what people need to understand is that if you got rid of all, like, let's say you got rid of all the stupid stuff, right? The things that most people would look at and be like, okay, that's ridiculous. If you got rid of all of that, what you need to understand is that a significant part of the federal budget is not what they call discretionary, which means that the, the federal government can decide to spend the money differently. So they can cut the, they can cut the defense budget because that's discretionary. But the defense budget, you know, doesn't make up, um, you know, as large a portion of the overall federal budget as they think. Most of the federal budget is things like Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security, right? And so these these represent massive um, amount. Like I, I don't have the exact amount sitting in front of me right now, but I want to say something like. I, Christian, you might know the number. I'm not in a place where I can look it up. But what people need to understand is that when we talk about government spending, most of that is, is going to those, those three programs. Um, and that takes up such a monstrous piece of the budget that if we were actually serious about trying to get the budget under control, you would have to actually address those things. Um, right. Because we have but what they call unfunded liabilities, which is to say that when we project out how much we're going to have to spend on Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, the way they're currently structured – it would eat up the entire federal budget. Like there'd be no money for roads. There'd be no like federal uh, roads. There'd be no money for, you know, the military, the mo no money for, you know, anything the federal government, no national parks, nothing. And, Next and so to we've that gotten ourselves in so much structural, we've got ourselves in so much structural problems right now that without fixing it, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Here's the problem. Mm -hmm. Who the hell is going to get reelected saying, Hey guys, here's the hard truth. We got to do something about these unfunded liabilities with respect to Medicaid, exactly. Medicare, yeah, and Social that's Security. That's the, the problem. Exactly. So it's it's politically a lot easier to just quote raise the debt ceiling because most people have no concept of what that actually means in their day to day lives until it gets really bad. The problem is, is the debt has ballooned. Like I think it was like five trillion in two thousand five, and now it's over 30, 30 trillion. So. Once you get to a certain point where the amount of debt that you have compared to the amount of uh, revenue that you bring in or tax revenue that you bring in, w once that starts to get overly lopsided, people will choose to, you know, they might not choose to uh, buy your treasury bonds anymore. So you get to a point where you, you, you might not have enough revenue to fund all of your major projects plus service the debt, which is to pay off the interest in your debt. 
And now you come in, now you get to a place where you have some real, you know, financial crisis. And essentially, instead of gradually fixing the things that are causing the problem, you end up with a crisis where now things start defaulting or going away or people don't get payments and it gets really bad. But as long as a politician believes that either through inflation or borrowing or raising taxes, they can kick the can down the road to the next election cycle, it becomes really easy to say that will be someone else's problem, but it won't be mine. Hmm. Hey, I got a question now with, well, that does, with yeah, yeah. Uh, interest rates coming up now. I mean, interest has almost been free, you know, debt has been almost free lately. Now is what kind of ramifications does it have for a government that borrows trillions of dollars when suddenly the interest rate is quadruple what it used to be? That, that's the rule. I, I mean, I want, I'd actually like Christian to feel this one because I think that's the part right now where a lot of the arguments we've been having about this since I think it was 2008 have been like, just like you said, what's the big deal? It's free money essentially to borrow it because there's no interest in a rate on a lot of it. Well, now yeah. that isn't the case. So any additional debt that you take on is a lot more costly to the taxpayer. But Christian can probably articulate that. Well, I can. It, it, it takes time. So like, it's not like immediately when, you know, interest rates are raised that suddenly the interest that the federal government pays on debt goes up immediately. Well, what about it's, new debt? Is it future debt that's being that's taken what I was on wondering. That, that, that goes up or it's it's when um, certain bonds, uh, you know, like come to maturity and then they're just refinanced um, and then it'll be at that higher rate. So it'll take time. Um, I mean, if the Fed, if the Federal Reserve keeps um, interest rates relatively high, um you know, for like the next two or three years, then yes, you will see just a, a complete implosion of, it's, I mean, what we're heading towards is to be, it's funny because Lydia opened this up with, with being like, you know, hopefully we're going to be a little bit optimistic. Oh uh, <laughs> man, I'm here to burst that bubble for you. I'm going to, I'm going to red or not red pill. I'm going to black pill you all so hard. Yeah. Um, okay. well, we are we heading I'll towards say, a sovereign debt so. crisis. <laughs> But it seems to me like the solution. If you stick around to the end, I will actually give you things that you can be optimistic about. But okay, that is an that is an interesting interesting promise to our. And I have no doubt that you can do it, Nick. Um, So in order to set that up, though, let's set up why we're in a you know in a pickle right now, and then we can get to you know what what can some potential honest, real, realistic solutions be. I mean. The, the, the first problem is, and I actually have a chart that I want to show you to illustrate this. Um, Hamilton, I just sent it over to you. Um, this is a, um, this really goes to show like, you know, the, the, the crux of the problem. Um, for us, um, for our listeners who are not watching us, but just listening to us, this is a chart that a guy named uh, John Gabriel, he lives in Arizona, um, a conservative writer. Um, he keeps a chart of the, um, you know, state of America's, uh, you know, revenues, deficits, and debt. Um, Hamilton, click on the image and zoom in a little bit. You just see us falling off a cliff. And he illustrates where each administration begins, by the way. This goes all the way back to um, really the early 80s. Um, or, or, sorry, this goes back to 1988, Looks like um, Bush number one. Or no, I'm sorry. It goes back to Reagan. Okay. So the first chart is Reagan. The first line is when George H.W. Bush comes into office. The second chart is when Bill Clinton comes into office. Um, the first, uh, the the third line is when George uh, George W. Bush comes into office, and then following him is Obama, and then Trump. And the chart ends 
uh, with the end of Trump's term. So this image is actually two years out of date. He has not yet updated. He usually will only update it like every two years or when there's like a change in administration or something like that. So we probably won't see an update on this again in a little bit. But um, but he does update this every couple of years. And it's funny because I've been following this chart since 2012. And it is just lately, literally, we've just fallen off a cliff. So green shows revenue. Yellow shows the deficit. That's expenses more than revenue. That little tiny blue dot you see up there is what he calls the dot-com surplus. That's when the federal government briefly ran a budget surplus at the turn Mm. of the millennium in 2000 when Clinton was leaving office. Fun fact, Clinton did not balance the budget. It was congressional Republicans that balanced the budget. Clinton just simply signed the bill. He was the one Democrat willing to do so. Um, and more importantly, he left office with the federal debt being higher than when he took office. It's just that they balanced it at the very end. But that doesn't include eight years of him blowing money that we didn't have. Well, I think people don't understand the difference between deficit spending and debt. Okay, so deficit spending is the amount of money that you are spending more than the amount of money you're taking in. So if you're running a deficit, here's an example. Amazon usually runs a deficit on most of most of their operations outside of Amazon Web Services. They are losing money on most of their operations. They're spending more on running most of their operations than they're taking in. That is a deficit. Debt is the amount of money you owe. That's the sum total of all the money that you owe. So you could be running a deficit of, you know, only five bucks a year, but you could have a debt of trillions of dollars. So if we ever got to a point, for example, that we ever came back to that dot-com style surplus where we barely were making, the, the federal government was barely bringing in more money than it was spending, that wouldn't erase the debt. That would just simply mean the debt is no longer ballooning. The debt is growing because this chart here between revenue and, and, and deficits has expanded really since 2008. So just to clarify, even if the budget was was balanced, was balanced, that wouldn't erase the still 31. Still be in a major problem. Oh, we, we'd be in a huge, huge problem. I mean, what, th- this is why well, here's I said- the way, Here's the way to think of it. Here's the way to, here's the way to think of it. it it's, yeah, the deficit is just what you're, the deficit is the more debt that you're adding to the pile of debt you already have. So if you balance the budget, you're not actually paying down any of your debt. You're just not adding to it. Mm-hmm. So every time they brag about, oh, we balanced the budget. It's like, oh, good for you. You did what all the rest of us have to do, right? It's when, when you're in really good financial situation, that's where you've actually balanced the budget and you're making enough to where you can actually pay down the debt. So the interest, uh, the, you're not paying as much on, on interest over time and you're actually paying that down. That's that's a truly healthy uh, economy is when that, that debt number is going down at the same time that your, um, your your productivity within the country is going up, like when they when they brag about cutting the deficit, we should be looking at it and going like, okay, and right, it's you should you should have a balanced budget plus you should have enough left over to actually pay down debt. That's when you're in a really healthy area. Yes, I have another thing that I just sent Hamilton, and this is incredible, actually. Um, Nick, when you're done recording this and we actually publish this episode, you should actually, you, you should take a look at this because Nick can't look at this just, just like our, our audience oh. that's listening. No, he can't see it. Oh, no, he I, can. I can see it. Okay. Oh my yeah, gosh. Rome it. looks just like us. It, go oh go to goodness. the first chart. Go to the first chart. That's go, go to the previous one that I sent. That is the state of America's finances. Look the debt is the arc. amount of money that we owe. You see us it's falling identical. off the cliff here. The second chart is oh is the the amount of silver and Roman coins <laughs> it's throughout identical. history. It looks identical. We are repeating history in a different way. 
the the um it, it, it's it's commonly thought that like you know like barbarian invasions or whatever collapsed the Roman Empire. What collapsed the Roman Empire was they destroyed their currency. They it, and thus they destroyed their entire economy. And then they couldn't afford to pay their legions to defend their borders, or they couldn't afford to keep the the state running, or they couldn't afford to keep the bread and circuses going. And the entire the entire game basically fell apart as a result. There, it was called the crisis of the third century, and there were attempts to piece it back together. It did briefly work under Aurelian, but ultimately the Roman Empire could never recover from the crisis of the third century back to its former glory under the five good emperors. And the reason why is because Rome destroyed itself from within through debasement of its own currency, which led to hyperinflation, which ultimately, like I said, destroyed the economy. And when you look at this chart, you see the value of, of those silver coins, the Roman denarius falling off a cliff. It starts off with you know, Julius Caesar and Augustus at the beginning, and it's almost 100% pure silver. People had faith in that currency because there was actual value there. But over time, each each new generation of Roman emperor debased the currency, and suddenly it went from being 99% silver to 95% silver, to 90% silver, to 85% silver, to 75% silver. And eventually it fell so low that, that by the end of the crisis of the third century, it was it was like 5% silver. There was, so, there was so little silver in it that you could rub your, your thumb on the coin and it would wear off and you would see the copper tin sheath underneath it. And... It's a, a, a somewhat different set of circumstances are playing out now, but history has decided to not necessarily repeat itself, but rhyme. And that is why I'm very, very pessimistic on this topic, which is ironic because this is the that. thing that, yeah. That, can you, this can is you the say thing that one more time? I just because I think that was pretty profound. History has not decided to repeat itself, but it has chosen to rhyme. Yeah. Yep. And it's, it's not the same thing. It's not that we don't have, you know, it's not that we have Roman emperors that are literally debasing. I mean, we came off the gold standard a long time ago, over 50 years ago, right? It's, it's not the same thing. We don't have a crisis of the third century. We have a crisis of the 21st century, right? And we don't have Roman emperors murdering each other and the Praetorian Guard going around and, you know, like, like killing the president or stuff like that. So, so, so it's not an exact replica, and thank God, but we are moving in the same direction that the Roman sure. Empire went. Well, there's, yeah, there's, there's, certain, there's certain principles that are at play that are, are timeless. They manifest the results from, from misapplying those principles or for not recognizing those principles or violating them manifest itself differently within the age, the culture, the technology, you know, things of that nature. And so the thing, that, the thing that's difficult to escape, and, and I'll, I'll give an example of this, you, you just saw what Christian showed everybody, right? All right, I'm down here in Virginia, and we're going through the budget right now, and we keep talking about we have this budget surplus. Now, again, in Virginia, we balance our budget every year, and we pass a budget. every. We have a, we have a biannual budget that we pass every two years, right? And then we come back on the off year, and we make any changes based off of you know changes to revenue or debt or things like that. But here's the thing to understand. When they talk about this budget surplus, I have to explain to everyone coming to my office thinking, oh, budget surplus, that means – there's money for this, or there's money for that, or we can hire more people here. And I keep telling them, like, no, <laughs> you need to understand this quote surplus is in large part inflation. It was just it was money that was printed, and it was given down to states uh, and, and localities and everything else to spend on a variety of things. But this idea that this is some new high water mark for the Virginia budget or something like that just is not accurate. Not to mention the fact that the Virginia budget has increased something like 36 percent 
in the last few years, last several years. Nick, so I did the math on that. The, the 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 budget in Virginia has has grown much faster than population growth. Um, yeah, well, that's because our overall population growth in Virginia over the last ten years is down. Yeah, here's I mean, here's that, what I, I wrote like, in yeah. in October. I actually wrote this on Facebook because I did the math. I looked at the uh, at the state budget here in Virginia. Um, from 2000 to this current year, and and then I did the math to to you know equal out inflation. All these numbers here are inflation adjusted, and I said in 2000 the Commonwealth of Virginia spent just over five thousand dollars per resident. In 2023, the Commonwealth of Virginia is projected to spend over nine thousand dollars per resident. That's a nearly eighty percent increase in just over 20 years, and that's after adjusting for both population growth and inflation. And then I go on to say, why on earth is this, is this uh, is the state government growing its budget over three times faster than population growth? By the way, Florida has done the exact opposite. Um, yeah. the, the the free and base state of Florida has decided um, that their um, inflation adjusted growth for their budget since 2000 has grown by 27 percent. But the state's population has grown by 39 percent. So per person. Adjusted for inflation, the Florida budget today is actually in some ways more fiscally conservative than it was 23 years ago. Well, and, and it's also important to understand something, too, because I, I'm not even comfortable just, just looking at the population numbers. It's also the nature of the population that, that you get. So, for instance, if if businesses are leaving your state and going somewhere else and taking appropriate populations with them, then theoretically what's happening is you're having a pop, you're having a highly productive population that's moving into your state that are still at like max income years, income generating years and things like that. That can all be a net positive. If on the other hand, you have a bunch of people coming into your state because you present the perfect welfare haven. Okay. That doesn't, that's, that's actually not a net benefit to, to, you know, your overall state economy or, or budgets or anything like that. Um, in fact, it can be quite the opposite. And so it, it's important to recognize that in a lot of these places where you see population transfers, it's not just that population is moving, which is, is typically you know, not considered a good thing um, when it leaves your state. But if it's also people that are leaving when they're at peak income years um, or entrepreneurs or businesses that are leaving because of your tax or regulatory environment, th that is significantly worse than if someone is just leaving your state, but they weren't actually you know, generating income. And again, I, I'm not saying that you know, one human being is less of a person than the other. I'm just saying mathematically, right, when we're trying to actually balance budgets and, and do something correctly, that's an additional factor you have to take into consideration. And so it's it's we're in a bad situation where I've got to sit there and everyone that's coming in asking because, oh, hey, we, we had a budget amendment for this or we had a budget amendment for that. And I say, look, I'm not telling you morally whether or not you know spending on your particular thing is good or bad. I'm not saying and I'm just telling you mathematically it's not there. Like it, it, and what's crazy is that I, I was explaining this to somebody on how no, you need to understand there, there's no way they're going to take on that additional year over year budget requirement when there's not money to support this. And we said there was a like, well, can we lean on the federal government? No, <laughs> the federal government doesn't have it right there. I, I realized that for the last 30 some odd years, and especially since 2008, there's always been this idea that, oh, well, we'll just get more money from the federal government. OK, the federal government is not getting more revenue based off of increased productivity. Right. They've been printing it. So, no, we're, we're in a bad situation right now because of both fiscal and monetary policy. We're in a bad situation right now. The chickens are coming home to roost. And now when you ask for something, it will come from something else, right? You want more money for medical health uh, or healthcare spending. Okay, 
would I, should I take it for transportation or should I take it from public safety or should I take it from education? Because it's coming from one of them. Which one? And, and it's amazing because people have this attitude where it's like, oh, well, you're talking about economics, but I'm talking about caring for people. Or people say, you, know, you ask, how can we not, how can we afford to do this? I ask, how can we afford not to? You're an idiot. All right. Can I just say that right now? You're an idiot if you're making those sort of just ridiculous statements that suggest you care so much about people that somehow your plan can suspend reality and pretend that we have resources to allocate that we do not. Like if you really care about people, you will go to the trouble of understanding the economics with respect to resources and supply and demand and how all these things work and what's the best way to allocate them. I think it's through the marketplace. They think it's through government. But they their side has been winning this argument for decades now. And now we find ourselves in a situation where the resources don't exist. And they honestly believe that if we just print more money or if we write it on a piece of paper that it will be so, then the resources will just materialize out of thin air. They won't. They're not, they never have before. They're not going to now. And so this, this is the part where people actually are we're about to hit reality in a way that I've, we've never had to in my lifetime in the United States. Okay, so what do you see this looking like, Nick, and how can we push back on it? Like, how do we convince people that printing money isn't actually a tenable solution? Well, it's. I, I think they. I think they're kind of. I think they're starting to understand that, but then they always think that okay, well, the, what's the other solution? But the solution is never. Well, maybe the government shouldn't be trying attempting to provide goods and services that it, it's not uniquely qualified, nor was it ever, you know, effectively organized to do. Right. This this is where I go back to someone. And, and it's like, let's say I've, I've used this example before because I think it works. Let's say my car breaks down and I need to fix the car. And we all acknowledge the car has broken down. So I take the car to my dentist and I say, OK, <laughs> fix my car. And the dentist is like, I, I, I'm, I'm not equipped to fix your car. I don't know how to fix your car. And right. you say, you know what, dentist, you don't care about the fact that I can't get <laughs> my kids to work right now. And if you only cared enough, then you'd be able to fix my car. But you don't. No, I'm a dentist. Right. Like this is we're we're going to the wrong entity in order to try to solve certain problems. And, and as long as you continue to do that, you're going to get results that you don't like. And, and if you're going to sit there and convince yourself that the reason why your car doesn't run is you haven't found a dentist that cares enough yet, right? That's, you're, you're going to have a broke down car and wonder why. So when, when it comes to things like, now people might hear that and say, well, what are you talking about? Of course, the government has to have a budget. Okay, but what is the government doing with that money right now? I just said that the vast majority of it is the government trying to manage Social Security, right? What's Social Security mean? It's supposed to be retirement insurance. Okay, is it run like retirement insurance? Do I put my money in a little investment account and it, and it accrues interest over time? And then when I stop working, I, I own that account and it's mine? No, that's not how it works at all. When you pay into the, quote, Social Security retirement account that you're supposed to have, that money doesn't go somewhere where it's saved, accrues interest, gets invested in the economy, and then comes back to you in the form of returns. No, it goes to people that are currently collecting retirement right now. And, and people get mad when we say that, but if the private sector came up with a fund where they were doing the exact same thing, they would be immediately investigated, and then they would be spending time behind bars for engaging in a Ponzi scheme. Because what they would be doing is taking money from current investors in order to give it to previous investors. That's not how that works. That is not a sustainable system, especially when you have fewer people being born and fewer people actually investing into that system and more and more people taking out of it. Like that's what causes Ponzi schemes to collapse eventually. 
So that's what social security is. So you can look at it all day long and say, oh, but we got to care for the elder. I agree. But this clearly wasn't a good way to do it. And, and you look at the same thing with Medicaid and Medicare. What do they do with that? Well, it always starts off as we're, we're only going to address the, mo- the most impoverished people, the, the elderly within our society that, that need to be provided for in, in the last few years of their life or the incredibly indigent poor that can't get health care anywhere else. That's what we're going to do. And then what do you find over time? Well, the definition of what constitutes the indigent poor increases significantly. Or you have people on these programs far longer than the program was ever structured to be able to maintain. Well, okay, so you look at something like that, and you're like, okay, well, maybe the solution over here is to say, hey, instead of having the government manage retirement programs, what if we compromise and we say, okay, you got to save something for retirement, but you can choose what fund you want it to go into and you manage it that way. Well, the moment you do that, what does the left say? You want to privatize Social Security. You want to put it all on mm-hmm. Enron, as if Enron's the only stock that's ever existed. Right. What, what happens when you say, well, OK, maybe the government isn't good at managing health insurance. Oh, well, you want sick people to die. No, what I want is for people that don't know what they're doing. Right. And, and have a political incentive to continue to expand a program beyond the boundaries for which it can be maintained. I want to take the power out of the hands of those morons. Right. And I'd like to put it more into the hands, at the very least, of consumers who can then go into the marketplace and do business with people that are good at managing these things. It, it sounds like right. to me that we have – Lydia, I just want to make this one point that we can move on. It sounds like to me we have a, a, very, a, a very, very big challenge on our hands because there's two things. One, we need people to understand that you can't print money. You can't print your way to prosperity, and I think we've covered that a lot. The second thing is, is we also need people to understand that the federal government cannot continue funding programs, which it has no business being involved in, and are inefficient in executing That might be Social Security, Medicare, whatever it is. But the challenge that I think we should all be very, very aware of is that, you know, Christian and I's age group is in this, the middle of of the age groups right now where, yes, we grew up in uh, public education. We had, we drove on public roads. We had, you know, people within our public education system telling us we needed to go to college. We were encouraged to take out college loans that were funded by the federal government. And now we are in the workforce. But then on the older end of the spectrum, we have people who are taking out funds from Social Security every month uh, and need that to live. Um, but my point is, is that it's very hard to convince people who for their entire life have had the government helping them through all of this education, transportation, whatever it might be. And We've got a challenge on our hands. And Nick, I think it speaks to your passion about education that it's, we're, you know, should we even think for a second that we have the ability to uh, change the hearts and minds of all of these people? Or should we just be hyper focused on changing the education system so that we are providing private solutions to a currently publicly executed uh, system? That's what well, I think so. So to your point, because that's a, that's a very good one, right? When you have an entire generation of people that have lived under a system and they think to themselves, "Well, I've always heard about doom and gloom, but I've never really experienced it." You know, the, maybe this isn't reality, right? Like just how some conservatives feel when they say, "Oh, the polar ice caps are going to be gone in five years," and then they're not, right? It, it's this idea that, well, okay, maybe there really isn't a problem or it's overblown. Um, th- there really is a problem, but I like to I like to use this analogy. You know, th- there's the old joke of, um, you know, how do you acquire a small fortune? Start off with a large one, right? Well, 
that's that's what we have. Like we we had a country that was highly productive, and especially in the post-war years of World War II, we were highly productive, and there was almost no global competition with the United States when it came to a whole whole host of manufacturing, technology, etc. And so so there was these boon years where we were just able to massively grow and expand our industrial sector. Uh, but what happened, right? And this isn't a bad thing per se. What happened is other countries also developed their industrial capacity. They recovered from the war years. And so now there was more competition. Now there's a couple of ways you can look at that. Typically, if you allow competition to operate in a marketplace, what ends up happening is that competition makes the various producers better. It makes them more efficient with resources. They find alternatives. They find other ways to be able to provide. Some. However, if those same producers can go to the government and just get subsidies or restrictions or regulations, then it might help them in the in the interim. It might help them in the meantime. But overall, they're setting themselves up for future failure because now they, they can't compete on a global market. And so they need to actually punish uh, American consumers with regulations and tariffs and, and taxes and everything else. Then on top of that, instead of people providing for their own retirement, right? And, and let's and let's concede that there would be some people that would have would hard pressed to do that in, in the first place. But when the government takes over responsibility for doing that, once again, there's this negative incentive on people where it's like, well, I don't need to save for my retirement. I have Social Security. I don't need to you know, um, you know, stay in shape or take care of myself or eat right or do any of those things because I have I have free health care from the government and they, that will take care of me because there's a moral obligation for them to do so. And so you, you end up generating this culture of dependence and expectation that the gov- big daddy government's always going to be able to show up and save you. And it, it's not true. That, that's the thing. It's like the Democrats will argue that if we just had a more effectively and efficiently run government, then we could do all of this. I, I would say, OK, great. Show me one, because every single government that is, has adopted this sort of responsibility over the economy for a number of things that, quite frankly, governments are not uniquely capable or, or designed to do – are facing the same sort of problems that the United States is. We're just at different stages of the crisis. So that, that's the overall problem here. It's, 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 again, I go back to, it's not that your dentist doesn't care about fixing your car. It's that your dentist is not equipped to fix your car. Right. And the interesting argument is that your dentist, when faced with an automobile issue, is not in the position to fix it, really reflects how the left has weaponized this concept of emotional appeal. I wanted to kind of touch on Social Security, and then I think we should kind of start to wrap this up talking about personal responsibility. Because, But before we go that direction, Social Security is fascinating to me, and maybe Christian has some interesting historical perspective on this because for my uh, very light understanding of this issue, Social Security was not meant to be a permanent program. And I don't recall who said this. It might have been Reagan, but someone said something along the lines of there's nothing as permanent as a temporary government program. Is that the case with Social Security? And how can people maintain their own responsibility for their retirement, even with Social Security taxes taking money out of their paycheck? What do you think is a good strategy for that? So, Lydia, you're absolutely right. Um, when Social Security was first created in the 1930s, it, it was intended to be a, a, a temporary solution to one of many supposed temporary solutions that FDR came up with during, during the Great Depression as part of his New Deal. Um, 
most of those agencies and bills and solutions that FDR came up with ended up going by the wayside or lapsing, eventually being folded, vast majority of them. But many of them stayed in place. And the biggest one among them is arguably Social Security itself. The biggest problem that I think Social Security has had isn't even just that it's run by the government. I mean, that alone is a, is a, is a huge problem, but there's plenty of things the government does um, that, quite frankly, it doesn't really have a lot of business doing. So Social Security is not uniquely different in that regard. What makes Social Security so nefarious is, to the heart of what Nick said, is it is, in essence, a Ponzi scheme. And I, I, there's plenty... I. I know people that take out Social Security. Understand, that does not mean that the people who rely on Social Security are the bad guys here. Right. Any more than the people who used Bernie Madoff and got screwed because of it were the bad oh, guys. Oh, no. They're, they're, they're the, the victims. victims. They're the victims. They're not the bad guys. And this is this is what's so nefarious about how the left touches on this issue because they make it out to be that when somebody like Nick or somebody like us says Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, somehow – the left is able to twist that into making it seem like that we are attacking the recipients of Social yep. Security or the people paying into Social Security. I think some of that is the labeling. We we don't need to use that labeling. What we could do is we could explain that when Social Security was set into place, it took into account the birth rate and it took into account how many uh, young people in life expectancy, right. which right. was lower. Um, it, it took into account all of these things and... They were okay, thinking the birth rate would stay the same. Then. Right now, we're not even at the replenishment rate. And back in the okay, day, but, they were above the replenishment rate. That's okay, true. But even, even, that's, even that's not entirely true because there, there was a couple of things. When, when Social Security was first like floated out as an ideal, originally, there's a difference between a welfare program and an entitlement program. Right, A welfare program is when I take money from you and I give it to somebody else. An entitlement program is when you are required to pay into something and then you're supposed to re receive a benefit as a result of, of you know, that tax being collected and things like that. And I don't mean a benefit in like this esoteric sense of, oh, well, we all use the roads. I mean, no, I paid into Social Security and now I'm going to get to take out of Social Security. Right. That's that's the sort of entitlement plan that we're talking about. The problem is, is that the very first Social Security check that went out went out to somebody that had never paid into Social Security. So the, the whole concept of what they sold it as is an insurance program, right? Old age retirement insurance was a lie with the very first check they signed. Hmm. It, it right. We just the had the beginning. Yeah, it was from the very beginning set as structurally unstable and unsound. And the only reason, the only reason it has lasted this long was a combination of high levels of productivity and high levels of birth rates. But at the time that it was at the time that it was first instituted, um, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think we had something like for every one person that was taken out of it, I think we had close to ten that we're putting into the system. Now we're reaching a stage because of increased life expectancy and everything else. Now we're reaching a stage where it's something like I think three. Um, people are, are putting into it with everyone taking it out. Well, you can you can do the math there. If before it was you know roughly ten percent of the population or or fifteen percent of the population taking and the rest putting in, that's that has a lot more long term stability than a system where it's you know a third. Right, which is and, why and the birth rate really at. matters. But also, Nick, um, wasn't it very recently that the um, Social Security was finally? Uh, to the point where people had paid in 
equal to what they were pulling out now. No, uh, or we're not even close to that. That's a, that, that's actually another thing that the left- No, 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 no. I might have said that wrong. It was something to the effect of people who were paying into it um, were, were getting more back than they ever paid into it. And then there was a point where it crossed over and now- they're getting b- well, it out less well, than they paid. Into what's it. happening now is that the social security fund is being drawn down because more money is being siphoned out of the fund to pay mm-hmm. retirement for a larger generation, the boomers, what, what, than, than, than zoomers. And, I, I guess what I'm the, asking because is because the birth rate what, what, is falling. As Nick said earlier in this show, because the birth rate is falling, what you have is less people paying into a fund that more people are taking out because America is getting older at the same time that the birth rate is falling. The math does not add up, which which goes into a whole nother discussion about the you know the depopulation bomb as they call it. It's well, it's, this is one of the this is one of the things that we hear every single time. I mean, my grandparents have said it. I think everybody's grandparents have said it. I've paid into this all my life, right? And it's owed to me. And the truth of the matter oh, yeah. is, all of us have paid into this all of our lives, and it's owed to us. But it doesn't matter that it's owed to us. It won't be there for my generation. That's true. Well, here, here's, here's the problem with, with people saying that is that they're not wrong. Because no, they're not, not wrong. They pay into, not only did they pay into it, they were forced by law to pay into yeah, it in right. most cases. So I, I get their sentiment. But here's the issue. The, the, people, the people that paid into Bernie Madoff's investment plan, right, or the people that paid into you know, Sam Bankman freed or whatever it was, they were also victims. They were victims of somebody that mismanaged their money. Well, the government has mismanaged the money. The difference is, is that unlike, you know, SBF or unlike Bernie Madoff, those into, you know, Bernie Madoff couldn't go and then grab, grab a bunch of guys together with guns and then show up and take other people's money in order to give it to you. The government can. The problem is, is that the more the government has to tax other people in order to pay into these funds, the more people either stop being productive or move their productive capacity outside of the jurisdiction of whoever's taken their money. That's one of the reasons why you see people moving from state to state. It's also one of the reasons why it is so dangerous when the federal government talks about things like wealth taxes and everything else, because now it's not going to be, I got to move my business from New York to Florida. Now it's going to be, I got to move my business from New York to Costa Rica. Yes. Right. So, and this is the thing that needs to be understood. It's like all these people that are promising that, Oh, we'll just raise taxes. What they're really saying is don't worry about how we've mismanaged your money because we can go take that other guy's money by force and give it to you until that guy moves. Or until that guy stops making as much money. Or, or Nick, here's the other aspect of that is, I mean, a lot of these unfunded liabilities and a lot of this debt is being shifted to the backs of those who aren't even in the workforce yet. And, and when you look at that, um, I mean, there's a chart that shows, you know, debt for every American. Each child born in the U.S. in 2022 was born with $73,554,000 in debt according and i mean this is a it's it's it, this is a different one it's i mean this, i did put it in this, slack and uh, this kind of gets us to the whole what are we going to do about it but hold on I, like. I, I, I there's just one more piece i wanted to add to that and then when you take into account the fact that the birth rate is continually the fertility rate is not high enough for replenishment and so you're going to have less and less people 
able to work to pay this debt and more and more people, um, you know, requiring that unfunded liability to stay afloat. This is, it's so top heavy. It's completely unsustainable. And this is one of the reasons why I love that quote from Thomas Sowell, where he says, it's no wonder that uh, so many politicians are such shameless liars because people want to be lied to about this. That's it's, very they, they well. I mean, that's believe, how we they, got into this. They mess. want to believe it's okay. Yeah, they they want to believe it's okay. They want to believe that you know that really caring politician that said that the only problem is that we haven't taken enough from greedy people to give to me because I'm truly deserving. Well, right? they always they like, always use the that image of the train, and it's like you just want to throw grandma off the cliff or gra- throw grandma yeah. in front of the train. What it really is is they want to throw their children under the train. Well, no, no, no. They want to pretend that there is no train and that nobody needs to be thrown under as long as you give more power and money to them and they will end up fixing everything. And I mean, it's it's a great lie. It's a lie that makes you feel good about yourself while you're we've gotten to a point now where people feel a sense of moral superiority while they're pillaging the treasury for themselves that that is the most pernicious lie out of all of them is the idea that you are inherently a good person by bankrupting this country and by voting for people to make it more bankrupt you well, because, it's, it's, it's not just in your own self-interest you're a good person for doing that yeah yeah it's the, we always say the ben, the benefit of the thief is the thief doesn't have any the, the thief doesn't steal from you and then come back and ask you to thank him for it um, and, and what we're seeing right now, and, and, and understand that this is the part two where this is the unpopular thing to say. And yeah, the politicians are doing it, and I hold the politicians accountable for selling people on this idea, but at some point, everyone's responsible for their own actions. Yep. And, and so if you're buying into this narrative without, without giving a thought to what it actually means and, and trying to make sense of it, and, and one thing I try to get people to do too is it's like, okay... <laughs> This is all fine and good when you put yourself in the position of being the, the you know the the hero that is now going to get the money from the evil person that exploited you. But if you're not asking any questions, well, what do you mean exploited? Well, we just mean they make more money, right? Okay, well that's not exploitation. Hey, I- and, and now if you're gonna if you're gonna get money at their expense, if you're gonna get that okay, that's a that's a that's pillaging, right? That's looting. I, I'm sorry, but I, I fail to see at what point in this conversation. You know, you you've you've operated in a way that is morally justifiable. I, I just want to bring but up it, again. But but if a politician can convince you that no 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 this is entitled to you, it's been stolen from you, and I'm going to be the guy that goes and gets it and takes it. From, and not only is it good that I take this, it's good that you receive it because it was yours anyway. Why? Well, because you voted for me. I want to make one quick point before we move on to the personal responsibility aspect of this. Um, You know, we have to put our own budgets together for our own individual finances. And for me, and I think this is the same for everyone, the largest percentage of my budget goes to taxes. And Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid take up a significant portion of those taxes. And what's so frustrating to me is that the second largest budget item – outside of taxes for me is retirement investments and outside of social security, not including it's 401k, IRA, all that great stuff. 
What if I was able to take everything that's currently going into the Social Security budget? You'd be a millionaire by your 40s. Put it on my own retirement investments that I control. I've done the math. Like, like the vast majority, this is what's so nefarious about this, is that the vast majority of Americans, if you took the amount of money that they have to pay into Social Security, they they would all be millionaires by the time they retired. They would all be millionaires by the time they retired. And here's the the important thing to understand. If they've been able to invest it themselves. And, and, and it's interesting. You look at places like Singapore, or Chile, they've done things like this. And, and the retirement stability in Singapore is significantly higher as a result because that money was put into productive funds. And, and quite frankly, I'm just going to call them out. The Democrats always try to scare people that, oh, you're privatizing this and you're going to make it, you know, people are going to make bad investments. Look, if you put the same amount of money that you had been getting in social, or that you've been getting putting into Social Security for like 30, 40, 50 years, if you had put it into just like a generic fund that followed the New York Stock Exchange, right? We're not talking about you know one or two sketchy investments. We're talking about I just want the overall stock market average. You would have had multiples and multiples more money than you would ever be able to pull out of Social Security. And oh, by the way, when you died, you would be able to hand over that additional yeah. wealth yeah. to somebody else. And the same people that are talking about, well, this is unfair because you know certain people have generational wealth and certain people don't. Yeah, you're creating the situation where you've created ridiculous dependency where people can't generate that sort of wealth and they can't even generate that sort of wealth in their retirement. To be able to hand over to future generations, because when you die, I mean, other than like a, a smaller, uh, you know, you know, portion of it going to like a spouse or whatnot, that's it. It's gone. It doesn't matter if it doesn't matter if you paid three times as much into Social Security as you ever took out. You don't get the other three. That goes somewhere else, right? So th- th- this is just a poorly managed thing from the beginning. Now, here's the good news, right? Because I got to jump off here in a second. I got to go to a subcommittee, but I, I really do want to get to the good news because there is yeah. good news. And it's not going to sound that way up front, but just hear me out. The, the worst possible outcome is, is not being tied to a bad program. The worst possible outcome is being tied to a bad program and thinking it's a good one that you can depend on, right? That's the yes. worst outcome because then you don't make any other additional plans for your life. So the, the bad news, so if, if you're younger right now and you're looking at this, you're in your 20s, you're in your 30s, or even in your 40s, and you're looking at this and you're thinking, man, that stinks. I put all this money into something that might not even be there or not pay out the same, and I could have been doing this. Okay, great, but now you know. Now you know that the bottom line is that if you're depending on Social Security, that's a bad plan. So mm-hmm. it, it may be unfair that you, by law, have to put into that, but if you start preparing in other ways for your future retirement, you're going to be in an, in an infinitely better position because you're not living out of this false assumption that Social Security is going to be able to pay the bills. And, and so that, that is, I can't stress enough, that is good news because there's so many other ways that you can prepare for things like retirement. There's so many other things that you can prepare um, for things like medical costs. There's so many other things that you can do. And these have additional benefits. Like I was saying before, there, there are certain medical conditions that you end up you know, getting or catching as a result of things that have nothing to do with your actions. It could be genetics, you know, whatever. I'm not talking about that. But if you look at this from the standpoint of, okay, I understand that Medicare, Medicaid, that's a problem. I shouldn't be able to, I shouldn't rely on that. So I need to make decisions. I need to take control of my own health instead of assuming that daddy government's going to show up whenever I need them. You make different decisions with respect to what you eat, how you work out. And there's, there's, there's benefits to that. Right. There, there's there's all a whole host of side benefits that have nothing to do with the fact that you're not going to have the same level of medical bills. 
Mm. Right. There's all sorts of benefits to learning about how to invest and, and how to collect assets and, and learning the difference between assets and liabilities and what really is an investment versus what is not. And, and there's all kinds of things that end up being ancillary benefits for you, for your family, uh, for your community as a result of learning and understanding these things. So the, the thing that I would encourage people on is it, it's perfectly fine to be frustrated about how government is spending your money, what's going on with the debt right now. But the most important thing to understand is while you should use that to you know, vote for better people, they're, they're going to hopefully correct that. Um, you should also realize that there's a whole lot of things that is completely within your control with respect to how you live your life and the decisions that you make, where if you just ignore this noise with respect to, oh, don't worry, I can rely on, no, I can't, I can't rely on Social Security, I can't rely on Medicaid, I can't rely on Medicare. What I can do is make decisions with my money, with my time, with my choices that are going to set me up for success, not only in the areas I want them to, my retirement, the amount of money I spend on healthcare, but all these other ancillary benefits that come from learning how to actually effectively generate and manage wealth, learning how to actually take care of yourself. So that is a positive thing, provided that you understand that, you accept that as a reality, and then you plan and you adjust your own lifestyle accordingly. Because we still do live in, in one of the freest, most prosperous places on earth and in world history, and there's still all kinds of abundant opportunity as long as you understand where that opportunity rests, and it is not with the people attempting to manage the federal budget. Nick, that is so great. That's actually literally everything that I was going to use to sum this up. Like We live in one of the most prosperous countries in the world. It's really amazing that we can live here. We have a lot of opportunities. Lots of other people don't. Yes, our government is extremely hijacked by kind of crazy people, but there's a lot that we can do. So I'm so glad you brought all this up. And I think that's a great place to wrap today's episode, um, actually leaving on a little bit of an optimistic note. Now, we were going to show some graphs and charts of what it would look like if the U.S. government were, were an American family household, but those are super depressing. And this is a much better note to leave on. <laughs> so thank you so much for that, Nick. Well, thank you guys very much. I apologize. I'm going to have to jump out now. But uh, if, in case anybody's wondering what I'm doing, I'm actually the chairman of the uh, subcommittee one on public safety committee here in the Commonwealth Virginia House of Delegates. Subcommittee one is where we hear all of the gun legislation. And I'm about to go preside over that committee as we listen to testimony on about 23 different gun bills. Um, and it should be interesting. So once again, thank you guys for being patient with me while I'm in session. Thank you to the whole crew for, for covering down. But I will see you guys next episode. And thanks again, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us, Nick. I feel like that was a great show. If you guys have anything else to add, you can add it now. Otherwise, we'll just wrap it up and see everybody off. I've been blackpilled again. Oh, really? <laughs> Nick wasn't no, no, convincing no. enough? No, no, very convincing. I, I, I think that it's really easy to get um, perplexed and almost depressed with the idea that you can invest in your IRAs, you can invest in your 401ks, but the government is still going to take more money out of your taxes mm -hmm. for their own investment portfolio and give you less money at the end of the day. But no, I think that, that there is something very very powerful in knowing that we still have the freedom to go out and invest in other areas. Think about it from this point of view. Yes, it is unjust, uh, you know, uh, unjust that 25% of your paycheck is being stolen by the federal government, to some degree the state government too, but mostly yeah. the federal government. It's terrible. And and we've talked about, you know, how how difficult it is for people to get ahead when they're taking a 25% pay cut right off the top before they can do anything else with any of their money. 
And even when they can do stuff with that money, unless you're putting it like in a Roth IRA, you're going to be taxed on that yeah. after you pull mm-hmm. it out out of the stock market if you're going to invest it there or out of anything else for that matter when you're going to pull it out. But understand that for the vast majority of human history, 100% of your wealth was being taken by somebody true. else. True. The, 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 true. The default for 90% of human history, as far as civilization goes back, is you worked for the state, for the king or the pharaoh or the emperor or the general or the khan, wh- whoever it was. Y- right. Y- you didn't have anywhere to 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 invest. The, the, the concept of investing wasn't a thing. You were a peasant farmer. And, you know, if your little city state lost the war, your house was going to get burned down and you were going to get sold into slavery. That was the story of civilization for thousands of years. It has only been in the last couple hundred years that that story has changed in any meaningful way. So we've gone from an environment where 100 percent of your labor, 100 percent of your wealth is being taken by somebody else by force, in some cases, violent force to an environment where 25% of what you earn is being taken from you. And it is up to you as an individual with the understanding that we still live in an, uh, you know, in, in just society where, where, you know, the fruits of your labor are not all yours, unfortunately. Even with that understanding, it is up to you as an individual, and this goes back to Nick's point, for you to find a way to take care of yourself without being in a position where you need to rely on the government, even with the burden of having to fund a system that you don't think is going to be there in the future. I am operating under the idea that, that, you know, I pay into all these programs and I don't think I'm going to see a penny of it. Mm -hmm. And and I live my life and I, I make my own plans for my own future and my own retirement with the implicit assumption that I will not see a cent of what I'm paying into this stuff. And if I see even $1 of it, that will be, you know, a, a, a benefit to me that I, I, I had no plans for. Tina, wanted, do you have any thoughts to wrap us out here on this episode? Uh, you know, honestly, I, I would just echo what you guys have both already said. I was out, about to say, you know, although it is completely unjust that that we are in a position to where really most a lot of us are never going to see some of these benefits it's such a broken system. We have to just wrap our brains around the idea that we're not going to see that. Do not depend on it and start making your own plans and make sure that you take care of your own family, make your own plans and be as fiscally responsible as you can possibly be for your own family. And that way, when, when the hammer drops on this and when it suddenly goes belly up, you're not going belly up with it. You have looked out for your family. I think we should do another resilience episode at some point like we did around New Year's because, I mean, it's not just investments. It's potentially, you know, raising homesteading and Mm -hmm. homeschooling, different things of that nature. So, Lydia, I'm going to stop dragging this out. Why don't you close this out? Well, I wanted to thank everybody for tuning in today. We had a really good conversation about actually a pretty dark topic. And I really appreciate Christian putting in the effort to try to for look sure. on the sunny side. That was a good improvement for sure. There's no sense being blackpilled all the time. The fact of the matter is that the world can sometimes be a dark place, but it really is what you make it. And you can make it a lot better than you think it is, but it does take a lot of personal responsibility. Responsibility is actually very freeing, unlike what the left 
tries to tell us. So hopefully we can leave everyone with that. And on that note, you guys should make sure to tune in uh, to our episodes every Tuesday and Thursday over on the YouTube channel. You guys should join us over on our volley chat. We look for your ideas all over there pretty much every day of the week. And until next time, we'll see everyone later. Bye, guys. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.